Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We will be in chapter 1 this morning, and our text is verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. This is uh, now our fourth week in the book of Romans. Hopefully by now we're keenly aware of Paul's lengthy introduction here as he greets his readers and, and shows them what makes him worthy to write such a letter and then explains to them the, the deep desire that he has to, to be in their company. As we saw last week, Paul, Paul longed to go to Rome and, and to use the gifts that God had given him for the benefit of the people. He had a new salvation and a new calling. He had grace and apostleship, which was the, the fuel, the, the motivation for his ambition to minister the gospel to these saints in Rome. Paul says, I, I, I hope to reap a harvest among you. He, he desires to taste the fruit of gospel ministry with them, and he's quite zealous and enthusiastic. I am eager, the text says, not to go to your city to, to see the great things about your town, not to marvel at the empire or its regime or witness the p- political power, none of that. I am eager to preach the gospel. When's the last time that you anticipated something that was on the horizon? Maybe you um, are in the midst of anticipating currently as we await Christmas and all the joys that, that come with gathering with family and longing to see grandparents and maybe the kids are home from college or maybe it's the one time a year where dad makes prime rib. Uh, maybe you're, ex- you're eager to exchange gifts. I, I love giving gifts. I, uh, sure, I love to, to receive gifts as well, but I just love to see the joy on people's faces when I give them gifts. Usually joy, sometimes it's a dud, but I do pride myself on being a really good gift giver. Or maybe you are anticipating being finished with school or, or graduating or maybe the promotion that's around the corner. I remember when we, when we first told our kids we were going to Disney, the excitement and the anticipation, the, the buildup for months as they longed to visit the most magical place on earth. Sadly, it's a place that is getting harder and harder to be excited about as it caves more and more to the patterns of our world. But, but nonetheless, anticipation is, is really kindness from the Lord. Our longings for good things, if we think about it, Our eagerness for what is to come is microcosmic of another longing for something even better. Really what is happening when we long for something, it's it's like our life is a a giant illustration, a a big analogy. There's resemblance and correspondence as we long to anticipate Christmas coming or going off to college or grandparents coming to town or family vacation. There's a sense in which this eagerness ought to point us to the greatest longing in human existence. The longing to return to the garden. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Philippians, to depart and to be with Christ far better. We, we long to be with Christ. We long for Christ to return. We long for the hope of glory. We long to commune with the triune God of the universe in the new heavens and the new earth. In pure joy, the fullness of love, sinless perfection of God's presence. This is the, the hope that the Christian anticipates. And, and as Paul anticipates and, and looks ahead with, with great eagerness, to be with the church in Rome, we can't miss the, the picture being painted here for, for a greater communion, a, a far better longing that this illustrates for us. Parents, what a great opportunity for us, especially this time of year, is as we see our children excited about the days to come, as we see them longing for Christmas morning and what awaits them. Use their own excitement and, and joy as an illustration, as a teaching moment to explain to them and, and cherish together the looming hope that awaits if they are found in this is the spirit in which Paul brings to verse 16 this morning. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to a group of Christians in Rome. And as Paul is writing this letter, he anticipates 
not only being allowed by the providence of God the opportunity to be with them, but he is writing here anticipating something else. As he's writing, he's anticipating the, the questions his readers might be asking. And he anticipates one rather large question that might be floating around in their minds. Why? Why, Paul? Why are you so eager to preach the gospel to us in Rome? Why? This is the great question Paul anticipates will be on the minds of his readers. Therefore, is the question he seeks to answer. He works through this text this morning. Why? So please stand with me if you are able, out of respect for God as his word is read to us this morning. God says this to us in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to read verse 15 as well. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but brethren, the word of our Lord will remain forever. Amen. I know we have to be really careful here because we've we've already said this before, that there really isn't a, a hierarchy in terms of Scripture and its importance, all Scripture is, is breathed by God and is profitable uh, to equip the man for every good work. But, but as we noted in our introductory look into this letter, Martin Lloyd-Jones has estimated that no book of the Bible has had a greater influence and has been used by God to impact the church more than the book of Romans. It, it kind of stands in a league of its own in terms of the influence it has had on the church, in my opinion, would be to agree with Dr. Lloyd-Jones. But, but regardless, if, if we have any desire to, to rank the potential impact or not, which again, to some degree, can be a, a foolish thing to do, but what, what absolutely cannot be denied is the massive impact, especially the, the theological impact the book of Romans has had on the body of Christ. And the two verses we are looking at this morning are a summary of this entire letter. These two verses are, are what the Holy Spirit used to flip the proverbial light on in the mind of the brilliant German monk in the 1500s. And how God used Martin Luther to reform the church's doctrine of the gospel. It was the book of Romans, and specifically verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1, that Luther could not escape. And that really comes as no surprise. Because these verses are really Paul's thesis statement to this entire letter. The main idea of our passage this morning is the same main idea of the entire letter to the Romans. And it is this, the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. We'll consider these two verses under the following three headings. You'll notice that your worship folder. For I am, for it is, for in it. Why, Paul? Why are you so eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome? Well, for I am, from verse 16a. For it is, from verse 16b. And for in it, from verse 17. And so starting first with for I am. Verse 16a again reads like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I so eager to preach the gospel to you? Well, it's because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is why I am eager. This is why I look with, with great anticipation to, to what I hope will come one day, and that is our mutual encouragement. The feast that we will have together on the fruit of gospel ministry. Why am I so eager? Because I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the message that I will bring to you. There's no embarrassment in my heart. I will not come with blushing cheeks. I'm not mortified by the news I bring. There's no self-conscious reserve in me. The message I come to herald, I'm eager because I'm proud of it. I'm too content in it not to be. Too satisfied in it to be humiliated by it. I come to proclaim with great zeal. I don't come shamefaced or sheepish. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does Paul begin his defense the way? Why, why does he begin to answer the question that 
the why that he anticipates this manner. I'm eager to preach the gospel. I bet you're wondering why. Here's my first bullet point. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed. Present tense verb indicating a, a habitual disposition. Interesting way to begin his reading. Maybe Paul has the words of Jesus ringing in his ear. Remember Mark chapter 8. Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection and he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angel. Jesus essentially says, listen, this message is offensive. The news of my life and death and resurrection is offensive, and there will be some who will be too ashamed to live in it and proclaim it. And if you are ashamed of the gospel when I come back in the glory of my Father, I will turn from you. Not even so much as look at you, or will I say one favorable word to you or of you. This is the fruit that you will bear if you're found to be ashamed of. This potentially plays a part in, in Paul's general choice of words here. Be quite, quite reasonable. But there's perhaps another piece to the puzzle, and that is the, the particular context Paul is speaking to. Remember, a, a mainly Greek Gentile audience, but, but as we've noted, certainly some, some Jews in the mix as well. And so the message of the gospel was extremely scandalous for both Greek and Jews. For, for the Greeks, the fact that the Son of God took on human flesh was born of a virgin, was crucified and hung on a cross. Nothing could be more absurd. That's not rational. God wouldn't come to die. That's not rational wisdom. That's insanity. What a foolish thing to believe. Likewise to the Jews, the, the message Paul brings is a stumbling block. Placing their faith in the Messiah who was murdered? What? What an affront. Listen to Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Irrespective of the, the reasons why for a moment, a bunch. But there's undoubtedly a, a great propensity for shame in the ancient I think that is pretty clear. There's a great propensity for shame. And, and Paul here is, is using a, a literary device called the litetes. Essentially, he's using a, a negative to express the contrary in the affirmative. It would be like saying uh, R.C. Sproul is not a bad author. And by saying he's not bad, what we mean is, well, he's rather gifted, skilled. I think our resource table indicates this to be our position. And, and so Paul is, is saying, I'm not ashamed as a way to affirm his enthusiasm about the gospel as a means to prod at the propensity for shame in the culture that he's writing to. Brothers and sisters, I, I'm not convinced the modern West is all that different than the ancient. The gospel is, is no less offensive here and now than it was there and then, really. Manifested differently in some ways, for sure, but... But the reason Christ is rejected and, and mocked, spat upon, is for the same sick, vile, wicked, evil, our selfish, individualistic, greedy for our own. And so consequently, there, there still remains a, a tendency for some, even among Christians, where the gospel is embarrassing. Where when pressed with an opportunity, timidity is what rises to the surface and not boldness. Where the Spirit is, is setting the table for gospel seeds to be sown in a conversation and, and we reason with our minds to try to find every way conceivable to get out of a conversation about the gospel. Why? Because there's a great tendency in our hearts for shame. It, it, it's not natural to be bold for the gospel. It's natural to be bold for oneself. The, the eagerness that Paul has here is not a, a grit, up, grit your teeth, pull up your, your bootstraps type of zeal. Rather, it's, it's wrought in the heart. It's produced by the Spirit of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Might this be true of, of Covenant Community Church where we aren't afraid to lose friends. We aren't afraid of being rejected. We're not scared or, or shy from opportunity. We, we don't cave 
to the ease and comfort of the moment. We don't favor money or fame or status, expense of gospel opportunity, but are bold, zealous, eager, unashamed of the gospel. Might God help us. Why, Paul? Why are you so eager to preach the gospel? One, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Two, verse 16b, for it is. Why? Well, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who, to the Jew first and also. Rome was a, a political empire with great power. The, the, the epicenter of the kingdom of the world in a lot of ways. A, a, a mighty worldly force. If the very concept of power could be centralized or, or localized, if power could be felt and understood, if you wanted to, to see worldly power, if you wanted to experience the power of the world, if you wanted to witness its dominance, the rule, the worldly reign, Rome was the place to be. But Paul here underscores a, a, a different power. A, a power that doesn't come from this world. A power that is otherworldly. A power that isn't localized in any one place on earth. Rather, a power that comes from above. A heavenly power. The power of God Almighty. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Why are you eager, Paul? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Brother Paul, what makes you unashamed? The power of God. Do, do you know how freeing this is? Do you know how good of news this is for you, church in Rome? That it isn't the, the governmental system that you depend upon. It isn't your own power that you rely and are hopeless without. It isn't my power, Paul's power, that you are at the mercy of. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Every single person ever saved, Old Testament or New Testament, African or American, male or female, tenant or landlord, slave or free, black or white, Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, wise or unwise, young or old, if they are saved, they are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation. John Murray says it this way, God's power, as it is operative unto salvation, is through the gospel alone. God saves. Only God is powerful enough to save sinners. We can't save ourselves. A government system can't save us. Only God Almighty can save us. And He saves us through the Gospel. This is where the power of God is found in the Gospel. And nowhere else as it pertains to salvation. The, the power of God is found nowhere else. It's not found in a nation. It's not found in an ethnic group. It's not found in a, in a worldly regime. It isn't found internally within us. It's found in a person who is the Gospel. The Gospel is a person. And that is where the power of God is found for salvation. This is what I'm not ashamed of. Because in Christ... That is where the power of gospel resides. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, there is the power. For... Notice here that, that Paul is, is not advocating for, for a gospel that is unconditional or universal. God's power for salvation is operative for everyone. We must keep who believes. There are many in this world today who, who are preaching a, a false gospel. There are many who are preaching a gospel that is foreign to the pages of Holy Scripture. There are a myriad of different ways that the true biblical gospel can be polluted. There are, are some who believe that, that Jesus came and died for everyone without exception. That, that the atoning work of Christ on the cross was, was for all humanity. And the power of God was operative unto salvation for every single person that has ever walked this earth. That they say the saving love of God is for everyone and is not conditioned upon anything. And, and, and they might even affirm a, a version of, of justification. They might even say, well, yes, of course you need to be justified before God. You need to be accounted righteous in his sight. But, but everyone obtains this justification merely on the basis of being made in the image of God. And that is not what Paul teaches here. That is not Orthodox Christianity. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That will not save anyone. Paul makes it clear here. This is the power of salvation. It is conditioned upon faith. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. 
And yet here is another way in which the gospel can be polluted in our culture. A a salvation that comes from a belief in God's existence. A salvation that comes from a belief in God's existence. There's no power in that. Salvation does not come on a mere basis of our recognition that God is present. And and this is not all that uncommon. Especially when... um, Asking people where their assurance comes from. How how do you know that you can be saved? Well, I know God exists. He is always with me. He's always there. I I, I can sense his presence. And friends, that's a form of of therapeutic deism. There's no power for salvation found in the testimony God exists. There's no power there. There's no power in that testimony. That's not the power of God operative for salvation that Paul mentions here. How do I know? Well, Well, even the demons believe that God exists, right? Isn't that what James teaches us? Isn't that what we see in in Genesis chapter 3? Satan in the form of a serpent. He doesn't reject the existence of God. I'm doubting any of us in this room reject the existence of God. And I bet we're all willing to admit that he exists. And even more than that, we're probably willing to acknowledge him the creator and sustainer of all things. But does that mean that each of us have experienced the power of God for salvation that Paul is referencing? this size, that's probably not the case. Where there is true biblical faith, that is where the power of God has taken root. The power of God for salvation is conditional. It is conditioned upon faith. Where there is faith, that is where the power of God has been made operative or effective unto salvation. But what is faith? We see that it is more than mere acknowledgement of God. But what is it? What is biblical faith? That's a massive question. Um, I, I don't know of, of a more important one. What is faith? Neil mentioned a, a couple weeks ago that the A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think if Tozer were in the room today, he would affirm that the, the next most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we contemplate biblical faith. Who is God? What is faith? They go hand in hand. And I'm afraid that there will be a, a large slew of really nice people in hell. Because the power of God for salvation wasn't effectual. There wasn't true, genuine faith. They didn't have biblical faith. The power of God for salvation is not to everyone. It's to everyone who believes. We're going to circle back and, and define what true biblical faith is. Consider the third point. And so, and so hold that thought for, for just a minute. But the verse goes on to say, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We've mentioned this uh, several times already in the first chapter of Romans, but it's certainly worth uh, noting again. The the plan of salvation, God's plan to to seek and save a lost people unto himself through the gospel message of his son Jesus Christ and the the sufficiency of his life, death, and resurrection on the behalf of sinners who have faith. This has always been plan A. This has been the plan of God from eternity past. It was revealed by way of promise to the Jew first and then to the Greek as Jesus was hung on a cross crucified, buried, and three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, and the promise of the gospel was fulfilled. This is why I desire to come to you. This is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Not only because the gospel is for the saint as much as it is for the sinner, as we talked about last week, but I'm also not ashamed of the gospel because it's not something new. This isn't breaking news. This isn't something novel or innovative in me. I don't have to stress about how this is going to go because this is not news that has been new. This this has been... God's plan all along. This is not my power. It's God's plan, power that comes from Him, and it's been His plan from day one. And and brethren, here is the the major point of application. As a a pastor, um, as a preacher, as someone who who has the joy of of standing in the pulpit each week and expositing the the text, preaching the Bible, preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, 
preaching the, the character of God, the, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith, the urgency of eternity. As I herald these truths each week, I have a great longing that my preaching would be effective. I have a deep desire that what I would say would be effective, that there would be fruit, that, that what would come from my labor in the text, the work that I put in, the time that I spend praying over the text, studying, reading, outlining, writing, it's my great desire that it would not fall on deaf ears but rather it would be used to change hearts and minds, that it would fuel a greater love for Christ, that it would embolden our witness, that it would empower our obedience, that that my preaching would be effective for salvation, whether in a regenerative sense or people who are coming to to faith for the first time and being born again, or in a sanctifying sense as people are continuing to, to be saved by the gospel and transformed to the likeness of Christ. I yearn for this. But having said all that, if not for a verse like Romans 1.16b, I couldn't do this. How a preacher can preach the Word of God and reject the complete sovereignty of God in salvation at the same time and still be able to sleep at night is beyond me. That would cripple me. To think that the salvation of my hearers, to think that your salvation is ultimately dependent upon me, how good I preach or how articulate I am or how much time I spend that week, how crafty or eloquent or digestible my sermon is. Brethren, if that's true, we're toast. I know myself. I know I'm not the best preacher in the world. No one's calling me to write books. I'm capable, but I'm nothing to write home about. I'm self-aware. And i got to think the same thing is running through the mind of the Apostle Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's there to be shameful about? There isn't power found in me. There's no power in Paul. The power is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brethren, let this reality calm your weary soul as you are ministering to the people in your sphere of influence. Keep preaching the gospel and rest in the reality that their salvation is not contingent upon your ministry to them. Do you know how freeing that is as a pastor? Do you know how freeing that can be as a parent? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. All right, verse 17. Such a crucial verse. Why, Paul? Why are you so eager to preach the gospel? For I'm not ashamed. Okay, why are you not ashamed, Paul? For it is the power of God for salvation. Okay, why is it the power of God for salvation? Paul answers yet another question he anticipates in verse 17. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? For in it, again it reads like this, for in it, it being the gospel, the subject is still the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation because in it, the righteousness of God is... This is the the, the progressive unfolding of of Paul's thought here. Now, as we've said already, the, the main point of this entire letter to the Romans is essentially summed up in these two verses. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And so we're going to unpack the, the, you know, the remaining weeks that the Lord gives us in great detail, the, the theology of the gospel. It's what he does for the next 11 chapters. And here are the nuts and bolts of what he is going to get into, where we are introduced to what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith. Verse 17 says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In other words, righteousness is what is needed in order to be in the presence of God. God is perfectly holy and just and good and righteous. And because he is good and holy and just and righteous, he can only be in the presence of pure holiness and righteousness. And in the gospel is where we learn that our own righteousness doesn't suffice. We are not righteous. Paul is going to declare that in just a few chapters. None is righteous, no, not one. 
And so how can unrighteous be in relationship with a righteous God? Well, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that God approves is revealed. The righteousness of the Son, the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteousness is revealed. This is the righteousness that is acceptable to God. Okay? How does one have such righteousness? If we are dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to please God, how might we obtain the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? We receive it by faith. From faith, for faith, the text says. In other words, it's all of faith. By faith alone. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. Sinners are accounted righteous before God as they receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. It is by faith and faith alone. Sinners are clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to them and they are now accounted as righteous themselves because Christ is righteousness for them by faith. Dear brother and sister, we we need to hold tightly to this doctrine. Might we never preach a legalistic gospel that is faith plus works as the Roman Catholics do? That is not the biblical gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation found in that gospel. And likewise, might we never preach a gospel that is a dead faith, that never affirms works to be a fruit of faith. The text says, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the sinner, now accounted as righteous, is only able to be justified and live by the means of faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That is the gospel. If you have peace with God this morning, brother or sister, it is not because you know God is with you. If you have peace with God this morning, it is not because you affirm his existence. If you have peace with God this morning, it is not because you are a good person. It is not because you have done many good things. If you have peace with God this morning, it is because you stand in the righteousness of Christ. It is the only way to be reconciled to God. Justification by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a big angle that is vital as we close. It is undoubtedly true that we are justified by faith alone. But again, we must circle back. What is faith? We are Accounted as righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. But what is faith? There are three components or or three facets, we might say, to faith that are important here. And I'm going to give you all three of these words uh, for you note takers. And then I'll explain them all. Three three Latin words. Notitia, N-O-T-I-T-I-A, notitia. Ascensus, A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. And finally, fiducia, F-I-D-U-C-I-A. Notitia ascensus fiducia. And I know I'm breaking all the cardinal teaching rules. As soon as you use words that you have to spell for your listeners, you've lost them. And so I apologize, but this is really important. And so I know that you can, you can hang in here. I'm confident that you can. Notitia ascensus fiducia. First, notitia. This is where we get the word notion. We, we have a notion or an idea of some sort of content. We, we place our faith in something or someone. And so in order to place your faith in Jesus, the content of the Christian faith, you have to know who this Lord Jesus Christ is. You have to have a knowledge of him. This is notitia. Next, the census. This takes the notion that Jesus is true. Well, actually, the the notion of Jesus' existence a bit further, the reality that he's true. This takes the knowledge of the the existence of Christ a, a step further to the conviction that the content of the Christian faith, namely Jesus Christ, is true. Jesus really is who he says he is. He can be trusted. Jesus really did die for my sins. I'm convicted of my own sins. My conscience is not settled in my own sins. I'm convinced that Jesus came to atone by his blood on the cross. And finally, fiducia. 
This takes the notion of Jesus, the ascent to the, to the conviction that Jesus, who he says he is, and takes it further to actually trusting him alone for salvation. Placing your faith in him, leaning on him, trusting him with your life, fully relying upon him for salvation. This is three, the three aspects of faith. Notitia, ascensus, fiducia. Notitia, a notion of Jesus, a census, a conviction that Jesus is true. Fiducia, a surrendered belief and trust in Jesus. Let me, let me try to illustrate this. Consider the, the, the pew that you're sitting in. In a manner of speaking, all three elements of faith are active right now as you sit in that pew. First, you have to have a notion that the pew existed. You obtained this by looking at it and saying, wow, look, a pew. This is notitia. But then you had to ascend that if you were to use the pew, it will do its job. You don't think this to yourself, obviously, but subconsciously you knew that the purpose of the pew is to hold you off the ground. You had the conviction that the pew will work, but the notion and the conviction weren't enough. You actually had to place your faith in the pew. You had to lower your rear end into the pew and trust that it would do its job. This is faith in a manner of speech. We are justified by faith. Now, what exactly do we mean when we say we are justified by faith? And, and this is essential to understand. Faith justifies solely on the basis of its resting and receiving Christ's righteousness. Faith in one sense is the relinquishment of all your own obedience and resting in Christ for his. Faith justifies only because it is the instrument by which Christ and his righteousness is received by us. Even our own faith as an act of obedience is a filthy rag and meritless as a justifying cause. Let me say that again. Faith justifies only because it is the instrument by which Christ and his righteousness is received. And even our own faith as an act of obedience is a filthy rag and meritless as a justifying cause. Faith as a plea before God doesn't plea any of our own obedience. None. Not even our own act of believing. Rather, it pleads all of Christ's obedience. Faith only justifies by virtue of the object it receives and rests upon, namely Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. Faith is not the source of your justification before God. It is the means. Faith is a, is a conduit. It, it, it's a channel. It, it's a channel and a conduit of grace that is given to us by God. It's, it's a gift. It is, it is as if, per Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, God packages up a gift of faith forgive me here, wraps it, ties it in a bow, sticks it under the tree, and then we open that gift at just the right God-appointed time. Not on Christmas morning, but rather after He regenerates us. And the proverbial lights come on in our soul, and we receive the gift of faith. This, this channel, this conduit by which we rest in the righteousness of Christ alone. Faith is the hand that receives the blessing of justification from the John Gill said that, that faith can be likened to the eye in the human body. The eye does not make the sun exist. It's through the eye by which we the sun. We are not justified by our faith as an act of obedience, as if our belief is some sort of meritorious cause. No, rather our faith is the instrument that is used by which we receive Christ and his righteousness. This is the gospel. This is what Paul is not ashamed of. This is what he's quite eager to preach. The gospel, the power of God for salvation. Why is it the power of God for salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteous shall live by faith. The sinner who is now accounted as righteous, you sinner that are now accounted as righteous, you live, you've been justified before God and have peace with God by faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel. God is holy and righteous. And you are a sinner who 
in and of yourself, in and of myself. We are dead in our trespasses, have fallen short of the glory of God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son, his eternally begotten son, to be born of a virgin, to take on human nature, to come and live a perfect life of obedience, never sinning a single time, which he accomplished by living the life that you were created to live and took the cup of wrath that was headed for you, dying the death that you deserve to die, atoning for the sins of God's people, and three days later rose victorious over sin and death from the grave and ascended into heaven. And this God now grants forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. This is the good news. You responded to this gospel. I encourage you now to, to bend your knee to Christ. You can trust him. Place your faith in him. Faith justifies solely on the basis of its resting, the relinquishment of all your own obedience and resting in Christ. Let's pray.